February 9th, 1964. A promising young magician appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Magicians regard Fred Capps as one of the greatest magicians of all time. But that's not why people remember the Ed Sullivan Show from February 9th, 1964. Fred Capps had the unfortunate job of following up another up-and-coming talent, a little band from England called The Beatles. You talk about a tough act to follow, poor guy. 73 million Americans tuned in to watch eight minutes of Paul, John, George, and Ringo. It was the Beatles' introduction to the widespread American public. And this introduction can be summed up probably with one word, hysteria. The screeches and screams of the teenage girls in the audience drowned out the harmonies of Lennon and McCartney on stage. And cameras every so often would pan to the audience and catch teenage girls literally hyperventilating, over, overwhelmed with adoration and consumed with what would be coined as Beatlemania. Including, I think, my aunt. I think my dad remembers this time. Now, this was as good of a first impression as any group of 23-year-old musicians could have asked for. And today... The Gospel of John introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. And John wants to give us not just a good introduction to Jesus. He wants to give us an amazing introduction to Jesus. The Ed Sullivan Show. So Jesus is bigger and more important than any of John's readers have realized. And that's what we discover today in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. If you're not there yet, would you turn with me in your Bible to John 1, 1 to 5 want to encourage you to be looking at this passage throughout the sermon. Because I'm going to make references to verse 1 or verse 2 or verse 3. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, we remember that the chapter numbers is just the big bold numbers. The verse numbers are just the little numbers after it. So John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. These five verses are part of the larger section of 18 verses. And most refer to this opening section of the Gospel of John as John's prologue. We'll see today how even the first part of the prologue sets the course for the entire book. John introduces us to themes that he will keep going throughout all of his book. Themes like the relationship between the Father and the Son. Themes like light and life. It sets the course for the entire book. But perhaps most importantly, these first five verses establish the main subject of the book. Jesus Christ. Let this be your North Star when reading the Bible, the whole Bible, in fact, and especially the book of John. This is a book about Jesus. This is a book about Jesus, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, how people responded to Jesus, and especially as we'll see today, who Jesus is, who Jesus is. Now, to tell us who Jesus is, John starts earlier than his counterparts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark begins the message, uh, begins the, his gospel with the message that Jesus proclaimed. 
Matthew and Luke, you might know, begin with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. John, on the other hand, goes all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning. He's quite ambitious. And he tells us the truth about who Jesus is from there and who Jesus has always been. So number one, we're going to have seven truths about who Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. First statement in John says, in the beginning was the word. If you paid attention when we read all these five verses, you see that the title of the word comes up a lot. He says it again and again and again. And you ought to be thinking, hold on a second. Steve, doesn't John say, never say Jesus? He always says the word. Are you trying to bait and switch us here? What gives with this title, the word? And how do you know that it refers to Jesus? Well, friend, I'm glad you asked. Well, a ton of ink has been spilt on this topic. What gives with the title of the word? Some speculate that John corrects the Greek concept of the logos with the word that's translated as the word. Don't get confused there. He, he, some speculate that John corrects the Greek concept of the logos. So many viewed this logos as the rational principle by which everything exists. Pay close attention. They view the rational principle, not the rational person by which everything exists. Uh, maybe a story might help us illustrate this. One time I was in line at Chipotle, great restaurant. I was in line to get my double steak burrito bowl. Uh, And in front of me was two guys talking and one guy said to another man, uh, he said, you know, I think the universe is trying to tell me that it wants me to become a vegan. And I didn't respond because I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, (laughs) And I wonder, have you heard people talk like this and say something like the universe, use the universe in this way? I think it's just another way to say that there is a principle and not a person that uh, organizes and sustains everything. It's another way to shake off our accountability to God, that we make God an immaterial object or principle. It's nothing new. The Greeks did the same thing. Now, so maybe this is what John is doing when he uses the title of the word. But we should remember something about John. John isn't Greek. John is Jewish. Him and his brother James are fishermen from Galilee. This title of the word then likely comes from John's heritage in the Old Testament. As many Bible scholars have observed, the Old Testament connects God's word with how God creates, with how God reveals himself, and with how God delivers his people. Creation, revelation, deliverance. And John is saying something amazing. He's saying that this word is a person. Other places like Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 echo the same truth. John is saying that the ultimate way that God creates, the ultimate way that God reveals himself, the ultimate way that God delivers his people is through Jesus, God the Son. Verse 14, how do we know that the word is a person, is Jesus? Well, verse 14, just a sneak preview, tells us that Jesus is the word who took on flesh. Now, why does John use this title of the word? I think John is very shrewd and very wise to start with this title. You see, it was a way that he could relate to all of his possible readers. 
I think as we read John, you can sense that he's writing to both a Greek or Gentile audience as well as a Jewish audience. It's because often John talks about Old Testament concepts. And so that would be familiar to his Jewish audience. But when he, ta- when he brings up something from the Old Testament, he often explains what he's saying. And that serves his Greek or his Gentile audience. So to his Greek readers, this title of the word for Jesus tells them to rethink how they explain the world. And to his Jewish readers, this title of the word tells them that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Shrewd and wise of John to start with this title because, you know, John could have used another one of his favorite titles for Jesus. He could have used the Son of God right off the bat. And he will use that title later a lot. In fact, later John writes that he wants everyone who reads this book to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in so doing have life in his name. But the title of Son of God might have been misunderstood by his Greek or Gentile readers. And what's more, the title of the Son of God might have offended his Jewish audience right off the bat. So this is what John does. He opens up his book, and he's going to make big claims about Jesus. But he wants to do so in a way that his readers will understand. And he wants to make big claims about Jesus and do so in a way that won't immediately shut down the conversation. John doesn't compromise on the truth. But he wants people to understand what he's saying, and he wants people to hear him out, not just tune him out. My fellow ambassadors in Christ, I think this is a really good pattern to follow. No compromise, but talk in a way that people will understand, and try to do what you can to keep the conversation going and make people hear you out and not shut it down. All right? Jesus is the word. Secondly, Jesus is eternal. It says, in the beginning was the word. Do the first three words of that statement ring a bell? Do they sound familiar? In the beginning was the word. Well, they should. You should go just to Genesis 1, verse 1. If you have trouble finding it, just look on page 1 of your Bible. The first three words of all the Bible are in the beginning. And John is doing something on purpose. To tell us about Jesus, John goes all the way back to the beginning. The beginning of everything. And John's going to keep using themes from Genesis throughout these five verses. But for now, he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, hold on just a second. We shouldn't get too hung up on the past tense of the verb was. First of all, different languages have different ways of using verb tense. So at times, it's difficult to carry over the sense of the original tense of the verb. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, He describes what was true when everything came into existence. In other words, he's saying, when everything began, Jesus was already there. He's saying, when everything came into existence, Jesus already was in existence. Jesus is eternal. Right off the bat, this opening statement refutes false teaching that went around in the early church and is still around today. One influential false teacher in the time of the early church was a guy named Arius. He said that there was once a time that Jesus did not exist. What John 1.1 says is that that isn't true. What John 1.1 says is that there was never a time Jesus didn't exist. Jesus is eternal. 
I love how author Michael Reeves draws out the importance of this. He writes an excellent book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, I have it in my office. It's not in the Resource Center. If you want to take a look, just let me know. Um, He writes this. He says, if there were once a time when the sun, that is S-O-N, when the sun didn't exist, then there was once a time when the father was not yet a father. And if that is the case, then there was once upon a time when God was not loving, since all by himself, he would have had nobody to love. Draws out the importance of Jesus always existing, being eternal. Statement number three. Jesus is distinct from the Father. Jesus is distinct from the Father. We take this from the statement, the word was with God. So we're saying that the Son and the Father are two separate persons. The word was with God. Now, John could have used a couple different words for the word with. The one he uses here is nearly always used when a person is with another person, specifically when two people have a close relationship. So again, John is driving home the point. The word is a person, and he is distinct but closely connected to God the Father, even with a simple word choice of the word with. Now, later... John will speak of the Holy Spirit in the same way. So now we have three distinct members of the Trinity, of the Godhead. There is another ancient false teaching that claims there is no distinction among the Trinity. It claims that at times God shows up as the Father, at other times God shows up as the Son, and at other times God shows up as the Spirit. In the early church, this teaching was called Sabellianism. Today it's called modalism or even oneness Pentecostalism. And again, John 1.1 refutes that teaching. Jesus, the Word, God the Son, is distinct from God the Father. They exist alongside each other. A classic example is we see this at Jesus' baptism, right? What's happening there? God the Son is being baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven, and God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, all existing alongside each other. So, Jesus is distinct from God the Father. Next, Jesus, oh, in the beginning, I'm gonna, I want to save it because it's important. In the beginning was the Word, reading verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our fourth statement is very simple, but it is not small. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We are not making this up. We are taking this from the Bible. This is the Bible's testimony about Jesus. Jesus is God. If you believe that, would you say it with me? Jesus is God. Amen. Christian, are you clear on this? Christian, are you a little bit embarrassed about this? Maybe a little bit hesitant to claim this? This may be a truth we shy away from, but by, with John starting the way he does, saying that Jesus is God, what he's saying for the entire book one commentator says, he's saying that all that can be said about God can also be said about the word, Jesus. Now, this is a big claim, so maybe we should clarify some things that might confuse us. Again, we should clarify, don't get hung up on the verb tense. John does not describe who the word used to be. He describes the state of things at the beginning. So he says, what was true at the beginning? The word was God. We should clarify also that John orders his words intentionally. 
He says that the word is God. He does not say that God is the word. He's not describing one aspect of God. John says that the word is just as much God as the father is God. Think about it. He he has just said that the word is distinct from the father. Here he is saying that the word is equal to the father. They are separate persons but one being. Now some have described this distinct yet united uh, relationship between the father and son. They've likened it to a lamp with its beams of light. It's the nature of the lamp to shine out the beams. It's the nature of the beams to come from the lamp. They are intimately connected, but separate. But even this analogy, like all other analogies, eventually fails to capture the relationship perfectly. But nonetheless, John 1 verse 1 is a building block of the Trinity. That there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. One God who eternally exists in three persons. Now we should clarify, although this is, might be impossible for us to understand, it is not contradictory. It's not contradictory. R.C. Sproul really helpfully explains this. He observes that God is not three in the same way that God is one. God is not three in the same way that God is one. So we do not believe there are three gods and that there is one God. That would be a contradiction. The Bible says that God is one in essence, but three in person. He is not three the same way he is one. And one more point of clarity. Jesus is God. Now you might know from John verse 1 that it's kind of an infamous verse. So you might know that Jehovah's Witnesses translate this verse to say that the word was a God. Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe you aren't. But uh, this, this translation, first of all, before even dealing with the grammar of it, to say that the word was a God, it would be a really strange way for John to start his book. Because the Bible is adamant that there are no other gods besides the one true God. But more than that, we'll deal with the grammar. It is a wrong way to translate this verse. Now, I'm going to do my best to explain this. I know you didn't sign up for grammar school this morning, but I think it could be worth knowing uh, what, why it, this is a good translation. All right, so bear with me. I'm going to do my best. All right, seatbelts on. So in the phrase, the word was God, English 101, what's the subject? In the phrase, the word was God, what is the subject of that sentence? The word. The word, good. What is the predicate of that sentence? God. God, good. What is the verb of that sentence? Was, good. So we have subject, verb, predicate. Very good. Very good. Now, in English, the subject is pretty much always first. It always comes before the predicate and before the verb. But here's the rub. That's not true in Greek. (laughs) You can indicate what the subject of a sentence is in Greek, not just by where you put it in the sentence, but also by how you spell the word. Crazy, I know. In Greek, when the predicate comes before the verb and before the subject, there is often not an article before it. So in Greek, it reads like God is the word, or God is word, basically. There's no article in front of God. An article is an A, an, or the. There's no article in front of God. 
Jehovah's Witnesses contend that since there is no definite article in front of the word God, meaning the God, since it doesn't say that, then that must mean John doesn't have a specific God in mind. Instead, that must mean that John writes about a general lesser God, that Jesus is a God. Now, here's the problem with this. The problem is that there are plenty of other similar sentences in the New Testament. When the predicate comes first, when it's before the verb and before the subject, and when that predicate doesn't have a definite article, like a the, but it still refers to something specific, not general. If I lost you there, maybe an example will help. Later in verse 49 of the same chapter, John the Baptist is talking. He's talking to Jesus. He's saying, you are the king of Israel. So pop quiz. Uh, What is the subject of that sentence? You are the king of Israel. You. Good. What is the predicate of that sentence? Good. The king of Israel. So, again, this is another example. The king of Israel in the Greek comes first. But there's no the in the Greek. And yet, because of context and because of a pattern, because of the title, we, put, we supply the the there. And it's really not disputed. You are the king of Israel. So this, is a, this common occurrence in Greek is known as Caldwell's rule. The, and really, what we have here is that the way that John orders the words in verse 1, it's meant to emphasize that the word really is God. Now, I know that was a lot. Grammar school's over. You didn't expect it today. You can unbuckle your seatbelt. But I brought this up because people don't like this truth. People attack the truth that Jesus is God. And don't worry, even if you can't remember all the grammatical rules of John 1, verse 1, the context is king. In other words, John's going to drive home this point that Jesus is God In more than just one statement. See, if you want to disprove that Jesus is God, you have to do more than change one verse. You have to change the whole Bible. And think of how John starts this book. We have to remember... Now, if that's you or if that's somewhat you, I don't know, friend, if we really appreciate how audacious it was for John to say something like this. See, at this time when John's writing, the Roman Empire is occupying the nation of Israel. And the Jews hated their Roman conquerors. They hated the Romans more than because the Romans invaded their homeland. They hated the Romans because the Romans worshipped multiple gods. And the core tenet of the Jewish identity was the belief in one God. And yet, John, a Jew living in the Roman Empire, cannot hold back. He says that the word is God, not another God, but equal with God. That's a belief that would not only get Romans to hate him, it would get his fellow Jews to hate him also. It would get everybody around him to hate him. So this isn't something that John would make up on his own for his own advantage. This would have to be something that John would have to be convinced of. My friend, if that's the case, you should at least hear him out. Next truth about Jesus comes in verse 3. Verse 2 repeats the truth that Jesus is distinct from the Father and prepares us for verse 3 where we see that Jesus is creator. Jesus is creator. If we want to get specific about it, you say that Jesus is the agent of creation. 
And John states this, you see in verse 3, he states this in a positive way and he states this in a negative way. He says, all things were made through him, positive, and without him was not anything made that was made, negative. So another quiz, simple Bible 101. How did God make everything? He spoke. Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be lights. And what happened? And there was lights. Yes. We read earlier, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And again, John is saying that this word is a person. We read this also earlier. Colossians 1, verse 16 says that all things were created through Christ, and all things were created for Christ. Jesus is creator. He is the agent of creation. And Jesus being the agent of creation is part of the pattern of how Father, Son, and Spirit have always worked together. Each member of the Trinity has distinct but harmonious roles and actions. So we see this in creation where the Father plans, the Son executes the plan, and the Spirit gives life to that plan. The Spirit is the one who hovered over creation, bringing life to what's been made. We see the same thing in new creation or our salvation. The Father plans, the Son executes that plan, and the Spirit gives life. Distinct, harmonious roles. Jesus is the agent of creation. Verse 3 verse three is another key verse that shows us that Jesus is not a created being. In fact, if you're talking with a Jehovah's Witness friend, I, I would probably go to verse 3 before I would talk about verse 1. And all you got to do is hone in on the phrase, without him was not anything made that was made. I know it kind of sounds clunky. What it's saying is that Jesus is responsible for everything that was made or created. If Jesus is responsible for everything that was made or created, then how can Jesus be a created being? If Jesus is not created but has always existed, how could he not be equal to God the Father? Who else has always existed eternally? Jesus is creator. Next, Jesus is life. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is a preview of what John will record Jesus saying in chapter 5, verse 26. Where Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now this concept of life, John talks about it in a couple different ways. He talks about it in terms of salvation, but, he, but here he talks about it mainly in terms of creation. Remember the context, John is referring to Genesis a lot. So John says that Jesus has life or existence in himself. He is self-existent. If you want to know what that means, just compare it or contrast it to you and me. We are not self-existent. I don't know about you, but I did not have any role in deciding or accomplishing my own physical birth. God bless you, Mom, for 17 hours of labor. (laughs) From our very beginning, we are not self-existent. We depend on others. You and I made it to this point only because other people fed us, other people gave us shelter, and other people protected us. Not so with Jesus. He is self-existent, life in himself. But verse 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, what does that second part mean? It's tough to know with certainty. 
But the life Jesus has in himself, John is saying, became the light of the human race. Now, if there's a theme for the Bible that helps us explain this, it's likely the theme of the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man and woman in his own image. Again, going back to that passage we read from Colossians. Colossians 1.15 calls Jesus the image, the image of the invisible God. So what does it mean for Jesus' life to be our light? What does it mean to be the image of God? What does it mean to reflect God? Well, it means to live like the perfect image or the perfect reflection of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Lastly, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This brings us to the final truth about Jesus from these verses. Jesus is light. Jesus is light. And you look at verse 5 again, and this verse sounds different than the other ones, doesn't it? The verb tense is different. John says the light continues to shine. John looks out into the future and sees that the light will not be overcome. So John enters some new territory with this statement. We can see how this statement, the light has not overcome, the darkness has not overcome, and we can see how this relates to creation. Right? At first there was darkness over the face of the deep. Then God spoke and there was light. Oh, but there's, there's just got to be more than this got to be more than this. John's going to go on to talk too much about light and darkness. John describes darkness as more than just the absence of light. John describes it as the active presence of evil. Now, just a quick note. If you're looking at a different translation, some English translations will say, the darkness has not understood it. Now, the word there can be translated that way, but we normally, just think about it, we normally don't think of darkness as something that understands or doesn't understand. We normally think of darkness in conflict with the light. So I think not overcome is a better translation. And also because the context of John's gospel. Because this conflict between darkness and light is going to come up time and again. Comes up in chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3 is more, more famous than just for chapter 3, verse 16, as great as it is. But John 3, 19, Jesus says that the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. People love the darkness rather than the light. So let's be honest with ourselves. There is darkness in each one of us. There is darkness in each one of us. Now I get it, for most of us it's restrained. But we know it's there. I appreciated one of our new members' testimony. She shared that one time she had an argument with somebody she loved, and she uttered the statement, I wish you were dead, and meant it. It was that moment she realized and understood the darkness that is in her. And so here, what John's doing, that from the very beginning of his book, John sets up Jesus as the hero. of How did Jesus do it? Oh, friends, we've been waiting for this moment. How did Jesus do it? Jesus overcame the light by, overcame the darkness by facing the darkness. On the cross, the Father turned his face away from his Son, and quite literally, everything became dark. Jesus, the light, was stamped out so that we wouldn't have to be. But darkness could not contain him. Darkness did not overtake him. 
he overtook darkness. And you know the way that John phrases verse 5? It actually most naturally refers to a single occasion. When was the pinnacle moment when darkness failed to overtake the light? It was when Jesus rose from the dead. My friend, if you are enveloped in darkness, the darkness in you, the darkness around you, come to Jesus, the light. The light that darkness cannot overcome. I think John opens this way in a very big way, kind of to shock his readers, to say Jesus is bigger and more important than you realize. So do we have any final words of application in the first five verses of John? Well, get used to hearing this application as we go through John. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And we ought to say from these verses, uh, John 1, 1 to 5, to believe in this Jesus. The one represented here. Not the Jesus that you could decide who he is and who he's not. Not the Jesus of a political party. Not the Jesus of the history channel. This Jesus The word who is eternal, equal yet distinct from God the Father, the agent of creation, the life, the light. Believe in this Jesus. And if you haven't believed in this Jesus, at least ask about it and do it today. And church, you're not off the hook either. Church, believe in this Jesus. It's got me thinking of, uh, it's been on my brain a while, I've just finished Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War, uh, kind of my history nerd side, is really good, uh, I promise. Uh, and at the end of it, one of the many effects of the Civil War was a change in grammar, how people spoke. It said that Americans went from saying, the United States are, to saying, the United States is. Now, you may say that this is just simple semantics, but it reflects something very meaningful. And it reminds me of here, We have to treat the truth about who Jesus is with carefulness and with precision. We aim for that in something like our statement of faith. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. If Christ is not true and natural God, born of the Father in eternity and creator of all creatures, we are doomed. We must have a Savior who is the true God and Lord over sin, death, devil, and hell. If we permit the devil to topple this stronghold for us so that we disbelieve in Jesus' divinity, then Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection profit us nothing. If Jesus isn't God, we aren't saved and we're going to hell. That's the rub. So finally, last word of uh, application. If Jesus is bigger and more important than we realize, then can we say, get to know Jesus more? Get to know Jesus better? You know, John means to leave us like after a great appetizer. You want more food. You know, if John wanted just to get his readers to believe in Jesus, he could have made his book a lot shorter. John wants a rich, well-informed faith in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, can we agree on some things here as we close, as we set out on this journey in John? Can we agree? We just haven't arrived. We have not arrived in so many ways, but especially with our knowledge of Christ. 
not just about knowing facts about him, but with experiencing a closer and deeper fellowship with him. Can we agree we have not arrived? Can we agree to come to church and start each day and not to say, I know enough. I'm fine with just dipping my toe in the water. Can we agree not to say that? Can we agree to come to church and to go about life every day and not function like, I don't really need or want to get closer to Christ today? Can we dispel that from our minds? Can we agree, brothers and sisters, can we settle it right now that we want more of Christ? We're not satisfied. Because guess what? Christian who's been in church forever, Christian who's been through the thick of it this year, Christian who's worn out and tired, Christian who's bored, Jesus is still bigger and more important and more glorious than you realize. May he show us that in his word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, fair are the meadows. Fair is the springtime, but you are fairest. You are most beautiful, most glorious. May we know the truth about you and stand upon you, the solid rock, all of the ground sinking sand. Make us clear, Lord, about who you are. And by your spirit, give us a hunger and thirst to know you more and to make you known. Guard us, Lord, from false teaching and from error. And so often in the case, it doesn't come with, you know, ancient false teachings. It, it doesn't come with things that are obvious. Our temptation to compromise, Lord, often comes when blood is thicker than theology. When we see other people who we love, who don't believe, this, who don't believe the truth, and all of a sudden we start to bend. May we speak the truth with love. No compromise, but to stand upon you and to follow after you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.